Good evening and welcome to another podcast from Antinomian Audiobooks. Tonight I'll be reading to you from Yoga, Immortality and Freedom by Mircha Eliada. We're in Chapter 2, Techniques for Autonomy. This is the third uh, subchapter, Excursus, Pranayama in Extra-Indian Asceticism. (laughs) Rhythmic breathing and holding the breath occur among the techniques of mystical physiology studied by Henri Maspero in his essay, Les procédés de nourrir le principe vital dans la religion daoïste ancienne. It is there termed embryonic respiration, tai chi. The principal goal of this respiratory exercise is acquiring long life, zhang shen, which the Taoists conceive as a material immortality of the body itself. Unlike pranayama, then, embryonic respiration is neither an exercise preliminary to to meditation nor an auxiliary exercise. It is self-sufficient. Embryonic respiration does not serve, as does pranayama, to prepare for spiritual concentration, for penetration into zones normally inaccessible to consciousness. Instead, it accomplishes a process of mystical physiology, in consequence of which the life of the body is indefinitely prolonged. In this, Taoism suggests hatha yoga, which it resembles to a certain extent, just as some erotic practices employed in it, retention of semen, recall tantrism. But the constant and primary preoccupation of China remains indefinite prolongation of the life of the material body, whereas India is obsessed by the idea of a spiritual freedom to be conquered through transfiguration, deification of the body. We will cite some Taoist texts dealing with the technique of respiration. Quote, one must withdraw to a retired chamber, shut the doors, seat oneself on a bed with a soft cover and a pillow two and a half inches high, lie down with the body in the right position, close the eyes and keep the breath shut in the diaphragm of the chest so that a hair laid on the nose and mouth will not move. Chen Chong Chi. A writer of the end of the 6th 6th century, Li Qiancheng, gives the following directions. Lie with the eyes shut and the hands closed. Keep the breath shut up inside to 200, then expel it from inside the mouth. This holding the breath is the essential thing. After long practice, one can reach the point of holding the breath during the time of three, five, seven, nine respirations, then of 12, 120, etc. To become immortal, one must hold the breath for the time required 
for 1,000 respirations. The technique of inner breathing, that is, the form of respiration termed embryonic, is far more difficult. Since this breathing is purely internal, it is no longer a mere matter of checking respiration, as the early Taoists did. The following text is central. Each time that, having absorbed the breath, one has leisure remaining, one must choose a quiet room where no one lives, loosen the hair, unfasten the, the clothes, and lie down with the body in the right position, stretch out the feet and hands, not close the hands, have a clean mat, the sides of which hang to the ground, then harmonize the breaths. When the breaths have each found their place, the internal organ that respectively corresponds to each breath, swallow the breath, then shut in the breath until it becomes intolerable. Darken the heart so that it does not think. Let the breath go where it will, and when the breath is intolerable, open the mouth and let it out. When the breath has just escaped, respiration is rapid. Harmonize the breaths. After seven or eight breaths, it rapidly becomes quieter. Then begin to melt the breath again in the same way. If one has time left over, stop after ten meltings. Melting the breath cannot be done every day. <clears throat> Excuse me every 10 days or every five days. If one has leisure or if one feels that there is not communication everywhere, if the four limbs feel an intolerable heat, then do it. Some of the results to which this embryonic breathing leads resemble the yogic powers, siddhi. One can then enter water without drowning or walk on fire without being burned, declares the celebrated treatise Effective and Secret Oral Formula concerning several methods of absorbing the breath. Holding the breath is practiced especially to cure certain maladies. One harmonizes the breath, then swallows it and holds it as long as possible. One meditates on the affected part. By thought, one pours the breath upon it, and by thought, makes the breath fight the malady by attempting to force its way through the obstructed passage. When the breath is exhausted, one expels it then begins again from 20 to 50 times. One stops when one sees sweat running over the affected part. One repeats the procedure daily at midnight or at the fifth watch until a cure is effected. In neo-Daoistic practice, the role of thought becomes more important. Su Ma Cheng Cheng writes in his discourse, those who absorb the breaths must follow them by thought when they enter their viscera so that the humors of the viscera shall be penetrated by the breaths, each breath conformably with the inner organ over which it presides, and thus they can circulate through the whole body and cure all sicknesses. 
It is probable that, at least in its neo-Daoistic form, this discipline of the breaths was influenced by tantric yoga. Certain simultaneously respiratory and sexual practices reached China as early as the 7th century of our era. Dr. John Filiozatz definitely concludes in favor of a, a borrowing from India. Taoism could not borrow a notion of the physiological role of the breath in this systematized form from ancient Chinese medicine, for ancient Chinese medicine includes no such notion. On the other hand, there were in China certain archaic techniques, shamanic in structure, the purpose of which was to imitate the respiration of animals. The deep and silent breathing of ecstasy resembled the respiration of animals during hibernation, and it is well known that the spontaneity and fullness of animal life was, for the Chinese, the preeminent example of an existence in perfect harmony with the cosmos. Marcel Granet admirably synthesizes the simultaneously organic and spiritual function of this embryonic respiration, characteristic both of organic completeness and of ecstasy. Quote, he who would avoid passion and vertigo must learn to breathe not from the throat alone, but from the whole body, from the heels up. Only this deep and silent breathing refines and enriches man's substance. It is, moreover, the respiration that establishes itself during both hibernation and ecstasy. By breathing with the neck stretched, one succeeds, if I may so express it, in laminating the breath and quintessentializing its vivifying power. <clears throat> the supreme goal is to establish a kind of inner circulation of the vital principles of such a nature that the individual can remain perfectly impervious and undergo the ordeal of immersion without harm. One becomes impermeable, autonomous, invulnerable, once one is in possession of the art of feeding and breathing in a closed circuit, as the embryo does. It is possible, then, that Indian influences reached the neo-Taoist groups who saw their ancestry not in Chinese scientific medicine, but in the autochthonous mystical tradition. Now, this tradition still preserved the immemorial nostalgia for the bliss and spontaneity of animals. In any case, Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu were already familiar with methodical respiration, and a Chu dynasty inscription attests the practice of a respiratory technique in the 6th century BC. Respiratory technique is also employed by Islamic mysticism. 
whatever the case may be in regard to the origin of this respiratory technique within the Islamic tradition, there is no doubt that certain Muslim mystics of India borrowed and practiced yogic exercises. One of them, Prince Muhammad Darashiko, even attempted a synthesis of Indian and Islamic mysticism. The technique of dikir sometimes bears striking formal resemblances to the Indian discipline of respiration. T.P. Hughes mentions a monk living on the Afghan frontier of whom it was said that he had practiced dikir so intensively that he was able to suspend his respiration for nearly three hours. An interesting problem is raised by hesychasm. Some of the ascetic preliminaries and methods of prayer employed by the hesychastic monks offer points of resemblance with yogic techniques, especially with pranayama. Father Irene Hausher thus summarizes the essentials of hesychastic prayer. It comprised, comprises a twofold exercise, omphaloskepsis and indefinite repetition of the prayer of Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. By sitting in darkness, bowing the head, fixing the eyes on the center of the abdomen, in other words, the navel, trying to discover the place of the heart, by repeating this exercise indefatigably and always accompanying it with the same invocation in harmony with the rhythm of respiration, which is retarded as much as possible, one will, if one perseveres day and night in this mental prayer, end by finding what one sought, the place of the heart, and with it and in it, all kinds of wonders and knowledge. Here is a short passage. <clears throat> Recently translated by Jean Guillard from Nisiphorus the Solitary, second half of the 13th century. Quote, as for you, as I have instructed you, sit down, compose your mind, introduce it, your mind, I say, into your nostrils. This is the road that the breath takes to reach the heart. Push it, force it to descend into your heart at the same time as the inhaled air. When it is there, you will see what joy will follow. You will have nothing to regret. As the man who returns home after an absence cannot contain his joy at again being with his wife and children, so the mind, when it is united with the soul, overflows with joy and ineffable delights. Therefore, my brother, accustom your mind not to hasten to depart from thence. At first, it has no zeal. That is the least that can be said for this enclosure and confinement within. But once it has contracted the habit, it will find no more pleasure in wanderings without. 
For the kingdom of God is within us, and to him who turns his gaze upon it and pursues it with pure prayer, all the outer world becomes vile and contemptible. In the 18th century, the doctrines and techniques of hesychasm were still familiar to monks of Athos. The following extracts are from the Enchiridion of Nicodemus the Hagiorite. Hagiorite. Quote, beginners must accustom themselves to be performing this return of the mind as the divine fasting fathers have taught, bowing the head and pressing the beard against the upper part of the chest. Why the breath must be held during prayer. Since your mind or the act of your mind is from childhood accustomed to disperse and scatter itself among the sensible things of the outer world, Therefore, when you say this prayer, breathe not constantly after the habit of nature, but hold your breath a little until the inner word has once spoken the prayer, and then breathe as the divine fathers have taught. Because through this momentary holding of the breath, the heart becomes ill at ease and straitened and hence feels a pain, not receiving the air that its nature requires, and the mind, for its part, by this method, more easily collects itself and returns toward the heart, because through this momentary holding of the breath, the hard and tough heart becomes thin, and the humidity of the heart, being properly compressed and warmed, becomes tender, sensitive, humble, and more disposed to compunction and to shedding tears freely. Because during this short holding of the breath, the heart feels uneasiness and pain. And through this uneasiness, uneasiness and this pain, it vomits the poisoned hook of pleasure and sin that it had swallowed. Finally, we must cite the fundamental treatise, the method of holy prayer and attention, long attributed to Simeon, the new theologian. The little work may well be contemporary with that of Nicephorus, if it is not by Nicephorus himself, as I how share not improbably conjectures. Father Hauscher had published an edition and translation of it in his La méthode d'horizon hésicaste. Hesychast. I have no idea what that means. We cite it after the more recent translation by Guillard. Quote, then seat yourself in a quiet cell, apart in a corner, and apply yourself to doing as I say. Close the door, raise your mind above any vain or transitory object. Then, pressing your beard against your chest, 
direct the eye of the body and with it all your mind upon the center of your belly that is upon your navel. Compress the inspiration of air passing through the nose so that you do not breathe easily and mentally examine the interior of your entrails in search of the place of the heart where all the powers of the soul delight to linger. In the beginning, you will find darkness and a stubborn opacity, but if you persevere, if you practice this exercise day and night, you will find, oh wonder, a boundless felicity. Finally, other hesychastic texts could be cited. For example, Gregory of Sinai, 1255 to 1346, some important passages from whose writings are given in Guillard's Petite Philocalie. The Apology for Hesychasm by Gregory Palamas, circa 1296 to 1359, the last great name in Byzantine theology can be consulted with interest. But we must not be deceived by these external analogies with pranayama. Among the hesychasts, respiratory discipline and bodily posture are used to prepare mental prayer. In the Yoga Sutras, these exercises pursue unification of consciousness and preparation for meditation, and the role of God, Ishwara, is comparatively small. But it is nonetheless true that the two techniques are phenomenologically similar enough to raise the question of a possible influence of Indian mystical physiology on hesychasm. We shall not enter upon this comparative study here. Okay, well, that was the section, third section of the second chapter, entitled... Um, Make sure I get this right. Excursus, pranayama in extra Indian asceticism. So, well, that wasn't really my favorite chapter yet, <laughs> but I guess that's what reading and um, uh, learning from reading books is about, is not always reading things you already know or are necessarily that interested in. So the next section sounds more interesting to me, yogic concentration and meditation. And I think I'll let you go this evening with that and uh, in the next podcast i'll move on to the next subsection of chapter two in yoga immortality and freedom by mircha eliada i hope you're enjoying this reading and i'll talk with you next time namaste